Attention all Christians who would like to become more effective in presenting and defending your beliefs. The National Conference on Christian Apologetics is the conference on apologetics and evidence for the faith. Coming to Charlotte, North Carolina, November 13th and 14th. As non-Christian belief systems compete for the hearts and minds of people everywhere, it's vitally important that Christians be equipped to share our faith confidently and effectively. Live, in person, hear an amazing lineup that includes Chuck Colson, Kay Arthur, William Lane Craig, Bible Answer Man Hank Hanegraaff, Oz Guinness, Gary Habermas, a debate between Dinesh D'Souza and Christopher Hitchens, and hosted by Dr. Alex McFarland of Southern Evangelical Seminary. The conference also includes special apologetic sessions just for teens. Call 1-800-77-TRUTH or visit nationalapologeticsconference.com. Brought to you by America's Apologetic School, Southern Evangelical Seminary. If God is in control of everything, then why is evil a problem? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Thursday, September the 3rd of 2009, and I'm your host, as always, Toby Logsdon, and welcome to our last lesson in our Knowing God series. Uh, Of course, this series, the purpose of this series has been to discuss what we know about God based on both Scripture and reason. And this study has been based on Norman Geisler's uh, book, the, his system, uh, Systematic Theology book, Volume 2, on God and Creation. Uh, so if you want more in-depth uh, discussion or details about any of these attributes that we've studied, I would just, I, I couldn't recommend this book strongly enough, because it's, it's so in-depth and there's so much information there. I mean, if, if you're looking for information and depth, man, that's the place to go. Norman Geisler, Systematic Theology, Volume 2. So anyway, God bless you guys. So glad to have you here with us today. Uh, I do have a, a very special announcement to make to you guys, and that is that I now have two books that are available on Amazon.com. If you have an iPod Touch, or if you have an iPhone, or if you have the Amazon.com Kindle, you can go onto Amazon.com, do a search for my name, and you'll pull up a couple books that I've put on there that are available in an electronic format. Uh, they're relatively cheap. They're four ninety nine, and uh, you know, one book is on abortion, and one book is some Q&A transcripts, and also some transcripts of emails that I've uh, had correspondence with. Uh, there's one of them that's with a, a cult pastor. So anyway, if that's something that you guys are interested in, and if you have an iPod Touch or an iPhone or a Kindle, uh, that is available to you now. So anyway, no book of the month this month or anything like that, but I did want to make you guys aware of the fact that those are now available to you. And I will be looking at putting the at least the Romans uh, series on Kindle as well, on Amazon.com as well, for download in an electronic format. So that will be made available to you guys in the near future, possibly. So anyway, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us for our last lesson in our Knowing God series. And, uh, you know, here we are on the final lesson in our series on the attributes of God. Obviously, it's been a long road, but 
but my prayer and my hope is that the journey through this series has been well worth it. And, um, and that we've come to a deeper understanding of who God is and why we attribute various characteristics to him, like omnipresence and omnipotence and omni-whatever, you know? Uh, omni-coolness was uh, something that I was considering doing today's lesson on, um, but I decided against it since uh, only Aquinas has this quote on God's omni-coolness. Never mind. Those of you who are on Facebook would get the joke. Uh, those of you who are following me on Facebook would get the joke. But no, omnicoolness is not a historically um, ascribed attribute of God. But, you know, as we've stated several times throughout this study, this uh, this study has been based on Dr. Geisler's Systematic Theology Volume 2 book. He actually ends the discussion of God's attributes by examining the relationship between God's mercy and wrath, which we covered last week. However, there's one more quality which we should rightfully ascribe to God, which isn't uh, an attribute per se in and of itself, but which follows naturally and logically when we put all of his attributes that we have discussed together, and that is his sovereignty. Dr. Geisler uh, does have a chapter in his book on the sovereignty of God, but it's not in the section outlining God's attributes. And honestly, I'm not sure that any discussion or study of God's attributes and qualities would be complete without throwing sovereignty into the mix. Uh, At the top of the list, this is it, his sovereignty. So what do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? Well, to an extent, we're saying that God has the right, as the creator of all things, to be in control of all things. But I believe that we should also take that just one more step further beyond that, uh, beyond affirming his right to be in control of all things in creation, and affirm that he is constantly exercising that right. As affirmed by the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, they wrote, quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass, end quote. And that's actually comforting, isn't it? I mean, that is really comforting. If it's true that God is sovereign, there's nothing that can come to pass that God didn't allow to transpire. Well, God's sovereignty flows naturally and logically from several of the attributes that we've discussed in this series. So let's take a brief look at how those attributes work together to bring us to the conclusion that God is indeed sovereign. Well, first of all, the fact that God is omnipotent logically leads us to affirm his sovereignty. As an all-powerful being, there's nothing which is logically feasible, which God is incapable of doing. And when I say logically feasible, um, you know, in other words, God is perfectly capable of doing anything which is logically possible. Of course, God's omnipotence logically follows from his infinite nature. As an infinite being, God has an infinite supply of power. And so thus, one can't say that something is too difficult for God to do. So for that reason, God's all-powerful nature indicates that he's sovereign. Secondly, the combination of God's omniscience and omnibenevolence leads us to affirm his sovereignty. Since he's all-loving, uh, omnibenevolent, he has an unchanging desire to do that which is ultimately good. And since he's also all-knowing, omniscient, uh, he knows what the best possible world would be, and he has the power in accordance with his omnipotence to create that world. The very nature of prophecy, for example, demonstrates that God can flawlessly predict future events in human history. And so thus, God's all-knowing and all-loving nature indicate that he's sovereign. 
Third, the fact that God is a necessary and eternal being leads us to affirm his sovereignty. Without a necessary and eternal being, there would be no temporal and contingent beings like us. We are temporal and contingent. Our very existence is contingent on the fact that God is ontologically prior to creation. And so thus, as a necessary and eternal being, we affirm that God is the cause and the creator of all things and prior to all things in existence. The Bible starts with the phrase, in the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1. Time didn't exist prior to space and vice versa. And thus, whatever existed prior to space must have necessarily existed chronologically prior to the advent of time. Scripture affirms that through him, that is Christ, all things were made. Without him, nothing that was made has been made. And that's John chapter 1 verse 3. In other words, without God, nothing would exist. Everything which exists in the past, present, or future is ultimately contingent, contingent upon the necessary existence of God. And so thus, God's necessity and eternality indicate that he's sovereign. In addition to these attributes, we should also add that as a necessary and omnibenevolent being, God sustains creation. He hasn't stepped out of the picture in order to allow creation to exist independently of him. You know, the deist position regarding God would be that, uh, you know, he, he created and then he just left everything alone. He just left everything the way it is. Well, an all-powerful God could possibly do this, but an all-loving God wouldn't. Indeed, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 affirms that, quote, He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. The book of Hebrews states that, quote, It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And so thus God is actively sustaining the universe and all of creation at all times. And finally, because God is omniscient, omnipresent, and all-wise, uh, we affirm that God rules over all things. Psalm chapter 48, verse 2 refers to God as the great king. And Psalm chapter 29, verse 10 affirms that his reign is everlasting. So not only does he reign over his creation, but he also ordains all human governmental institutions. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 uh, is where Paul writes that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. In fact, this is one reason why we refer to Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which is his rightful title. It's because he is over every governmental, human governmental institution. Now, historically speaking, the Christian faith has always declared the sovereignty of God. Going back to the even the, the very early 2nd century, we read in the martyrdom of Polycarp that, quote, all the martyrdoms were blessed and noble, and they took place according to the will of God, for it befits those of us who profess greater piety than others to ascribe to God authority over all things, end quote. Irenaeus, also in the second century, wrote that, quote, The Father will excel in wisdom, all human and angelic wisdom, because he is Lord and judge and the just one and ruler over all, for he is good and merciful and patient, end quote. Clement of Alexandria wrote that, quote, Nothing happens without the will of the Lord of the universe. He overrules for good the crimes of his enemies, end quote. Lactinatius wrote that, quote, The Most High Father arranged from the beginning and ordained all things that were accomplished, 
end quote. Thomas Aquinas wrote that nothing, quote, happens outside the order of the divine government, for while it is possible for an effect to happen outside the order of some particular cause, it is not possible outside the order of the universal cause. John Calvin wrote that, quote, since the arrangement of all things is in the hand of God, since to him belongs the disposal of life and death, he arranges all things by his sovereign counsel, end quote. Jonathan Edwards wrote that, quote, It is most evident by the works of God that his understanding and power are infinite, for he hath made all things out of nothing, and upholds and governs and manages all things every moment in all ages, without growing weary, must be of infinite power. And he would go on to write that, quote, The decrees of God are his sovereign decrees, and the work of creation and all God's works of providence are his sovereign works. It is he that worketh all things according to the counsel of his own will, end quote. So it's clear that for the most part, the church has always affirmed the sovereignty of God. There have been some exceptions along the way, but those are more viewed as heretics uh, than anything else. The norm Uh, the majority of Christians have always affirmed the sovereignty of God. Now, with that being said, however, as we come to a close here, we do have a dilemma. How can God be sovereign and yet evil exists? If God can do whatever pleases him, how can his reign include the free actions of people? Well, Jonathan Edwards actually tried to solve this dilemma by positing that humanity freely wills only to do that which they desire, which includes only evil, since humanity is totally depraved. However, he also concluded that God gives those individuals the will to do that which is good, a desire which they don't have in their fallen state and can't have apart from God stepping down and changing their will. Now, in response, let's note, first of all, that this really doesn't solve anything at all since Adam didn't live in a fallen state. If Adam didn't have a fallen nature, and if God must give people the desire to do good, then why did Adam sin? Where did he get the desire to do that which was evil? The desire to do evil, according to strong Calvinists, comes only from a totally depraved nature. But Adam wouldn't have been totally depraved prior to the fall. R.C. Sproul, who is a strong Calvinist, calls this a quote-unquote excruciating problem, and he notes that, quote, one thing is absolutely unthinkable, that God could be the author or doer of sin, end quote. So what is it that makes this problem excruciatingly difficult for strong Calvinists? Well, that's easy. The law of non-contradiction is what makes this excruciatingly problematic, because according to strong Calvinists, God can't give anyone the desire to do that which is evil. I mean, even if we say that Satan gave Adam that desire. Let's just say for a second that Adam uh, got the desire to do something evil from Satan. Well, where did Satan get that desire to do evil? He was created with the same degree of moral perfection that Adam originally had, but he had the desire to do evil as well. So God can't give anyone the desire to sin, and neither Satan nor Adam initially had an inclination or um, or a predisposition toward evil. And the will of an individual can't move unless either God gives them that desire or they have that desire within their very nature. However, Adam didn't have that predisposition within his nature since God is incapable of causing evil. And Adam was directly created by God. You know, one of these premises must be false since they contradict each other. And that, my friends, creates an excruciating problem for strong Calvinists. Jonathan Edwards didn't solve a thing. Instead, he helped to develop a theology which is, at best, 
self-defeating. The notion that God must move the will of an individual one way or the other is completely false. In fact, free will and God's sovereignty are totally compatible with one another. The simple fact is that evil exists because God gave both Satan and Adam free will, and they were able to do that which was good or that which was evil apart from God directly moving or predisposing their will toward a certain direction. And so thus, in accordance with the exercise of their free will, humanity and free creatures have the ability to choose to do that which is less than ultimately good. And it's from this fact that the presence of evil follows. If God didn't allow evil, he also wouldn't be able to allow humanity to have free will. I mean, could God turn a bullet into, uh, you know, say a flower, for example? Well, sure. But in doing so, he would be disallowing the exercise of the free will of the individual firing the bullet. Would that be a good thing? Well, I guess to an extent, yeah, it would be. But how far do we take that? Should God turn the mind of a person thinking evil thoughts into jello, for example? I mean, if this were the case, we wouldn't have the ability to even think about accusing God of evil since that act itself is evil. So God doesn't cause anyone to do that which is contrary to their will. Jesus cried out in the days leading up to his death, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. That's Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Similarly, Jesus addressed the non-believing Jews of his time, saying, You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. It's from John chapter 5, verse 40. Paul declared that God has called all men, all people, to repent. That's from Acts chapter 17, verse 30. And Peter wrote that God desires for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. So as an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, all-wise, all-present God... It's guaranteed that evil will be defeated, but that allowing evil to persist to the present moment, at the very least, indicates that not only is it in accordance with God's sovereignty, but that through evil, the greatest good will come about. What is that greatest good? Well, to an extent, that's a mystery, because God knows what it is, and we'll see that someday. But we do know that the greatest good that we possibly know is people freely choosing to know and love God. And love requires freedom and to freely choose to glorify him. And that's what we're trying to do by learning about his attributes is learn how to better glorify him. So anyway, if you guys have any questions, of course, you can email me. My email is cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. We will be having a new apologetic series starting up next week. The title of which will be Get the Hell Out. In other words, and I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, I mean, is the doctrine of hell immoral? What's God supposed to do with people who don't accept salvation? What's he supposed to do with them? Is he supposed to annihilate them? Would that be the most moral thing? Would reincarnating them be the most moral thing? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. What is God's most moral option? Should we take the doctrine of hell out? We're going to talk about that starting next week. Hope you guys tune in for that, and I hope it's something that you guys enjoy. So anyway, God bless you guys, and thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. 
This message has been brought to you by Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries. For those of you who don't listen regularly, we hope that this lesson has been a blessing to you, and we ask nothing further of you. But for those of you who consider our ministry at BibleStudyPodcast.org to be a regular source of teaching and instruction for you, we want to thank you for your faithfulness to participate financially in supporting our ministry. We do rely on your support to keep us growing and going. If you're a regular listener and would like to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcasts.org and make a tax-deductible donation through PayPal on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Or you can mail a tax-deductible donation to Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, P.O. Box 6804, Springdale, Arkansas, 72763. God bless you, and thank you again for your financial support. Keep growing closer to Jesus. 